0: Coming to you live from Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for another episode of Tech Talk with your host, Joey Klein.
1: First Tech Talk of 2024. Very momentous. Thank you, everyone, for joining. Uh, As always, we have two amazing executives from amazing Atlanta-based companies. Uh, First, we are going to chat with Sandeep Ahuja, the CEO and co-founder of Covetool. Hello, Sandeep.
2: Hey, so good to be here.
1: And we are going to finish off with Joshua Silver, the CEO and founder of Rainforest. Great to be here. Okay, let's jump in. Hi, Sandeep. How are you doing?
2: I'm doing great. How are you?
1: Good. So let's just get it out of the way. What is Cove Tool?
2: Cove Tool is an AI-powered sustainability consulting company. We are the software, we are the consultant, and we are revolutionizing the entire AEC, which is the Architecture Engineering Construction Space, and we're making it accessible.
1: Okay. So, and we, most people who listen to this know that we don't really get too much into my day gig, which is real estate, but we're going to chat about it a little bit Mm -hmm. because, of course, your business overlaps quite a lot with it. Oh, yeah. So, um, I think anyone who's paying attention has seen that whether it is ESG initiatives by Fortune 1000 companies, whether it's sustainability departments in large corporate real estate groups like the one that I work for, or whether it is A&E firms adding professionals in this field, there is a lot of buzz and talk about this. I think what, what I'm curious about is I find that when typically when there's a lot of buzz and something is relatively new, let's say within the past decade or so, you know, really started to kind of get attention, there tends to be a lot of window dressing and fluff on uh, with some of those organizations. And then there tends to be folks that are actually know what they're doing, actually dedicated to it and, you know, is making a difference beyond simply just putting something in a financial report. So I am curious about your journey to this issue and how you view the landscape that I just described right now.
2: I I really appreciate some of the things that you said, and there most definitely is an overlap. I don't know if you actually knew, but JLL is a proud user of Cove Tool. I did. Uh, okay, I guess you knew that then, because um, I didn't know um, what office it was, but I heard that from our team the other day, and I was like, "Oh, that's fantastic!" It's. I don't be know what office time.
1: it is either. I just know that we someone somewhere uses it.
2: Uh, that's exactly what I've heard. Um, yeah. So for for me, it most definitely started with just a understanding that buildings are forty percent of all carbon emissions. I was a practicing licensed architect, um, and I. I have buildings that I designed with no knowledge of how impactful buildings were. And when I learned that buildings were so impactful, I just knew that I had to change my life, my career, and do something about that. So that's really what got me to first becoming an expert in building science and building performance, and then being able to make it accessible, because even after I became the expert in building performance and was able to understand on a very granular level the impact of each decision, like what type of window, what type of roof, how it's oriented, not just on these big commercial buildings, but I mean, every like your house. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really when I learned that not everyone could do that. And that really got me going in the path of making sure that everyone can do that.
1: And so is the product, uh, let's take just going to name a design company or construction company. Let's take Skanska, for example, okay? I assume that that type of company could be a part of your user base. How would that company use your product versus how a JLL would use your product?
2: Most definitely. So to kind of put that into a comparison, both of those companies have, in in my understanding, an actual design team. That works with them, whether it's architects, whether it's engineers, whose job it is to figure out how buildings perform, what is the carbon use intensity, how much carbon is the building utilizing, how to, if it's a renovation, how to make those changes, what is the most cost effective way to make those changes that is best for the environment, or if it's a new construction, what the design should actually be to make sure that, yes, it's cost efficient, yes, it's aesthetically appealing. Yes, it's the right size, but also how to make it the lowest carbon. That's a lot of different variables for a human to do. Like, heck, when I was a consultant, that was still very hard for me to do. And that's why I charge people $30,000, dollars $50,000 a project when I ran my consulting practice. But that's the kind of insight that need to be democratized to make sure that we can do it for every single project. And that's how both of those companies would utilize it.
1: Okay, so the goal here is obviously this typically, this sort of a service and focus um, is left for companies that have the wherewithal to care about it and pay for it. And the software provides a way for organizations that might not have thought that they could access these services but care about it to do so.
2: Both. And there's very many users that we have, like I'll describe to you, even ends of the spectrum, there is a five person architecture firm. It's very tiny, most definitely does not have the resources to even teach someone a new software because they're so busy with the work that they're doing. They do five house projects in a given year. That's the smaller end of the spectrum, right? They don't have the bandwidth to teach an architect a new software. So, what they do is they access our low cost tech enabled sustainability consulting model and say, Hey, we just want energy and daylight models for all of these five houses um, that we do in a given year. And we do it in a fraction of the cost that a consultant would cost. And we do it really, really fast. Now, on the bigger end of the spectrum, where we are working with companies like JLL or uh, other key architecture firms, they will have the resources to teach it internally. So we're like, great, we'll teach the software to you so you can go fish for yourself. But they're also like, well, we have a few project managers that are just not down to learning new technology. And we're like, great, we're the easy button for that. Push that easy button and we'll do it for you. So it's kind of both ends of the spectrum because we really have to catch all
1: totally customizable based on where that particular user is in their journey and their size.
2: That's exactly right.
1: Yeah. So I want to go back a little bit. I find that, um, like not everyone fits in these two buckets, but I find that it's somewhat of a helpful, uh, framing. I feel like I see entrepreneurs by choice and entrepreneurs by force by choice. The ones that, uh, Love the hunt, love the thrill, love um, the stress, and just cannot work for someone else. By force, a professional that, in the way you described it, finds out something and it kind of changes their trajectory. Am I on to something?
2: You, may, maybe you are. I'll tell you how I started, um, <laughs> yeah. and you can tell me which category you think I'm in. Okay. Um For me, I was working at a large architecture firm. Uh, This is now about 12 years ago. This was the first company I started that was prior to Cove Tool. And I was driving over to the dentist and it was a Thursday. And I just knew on that one Thursday morning that I wanted to start my own company. And then my thought was that if I still felt that way on Monday, I was going to put in my two weeks. And I still felt that way on Monday. So I put in my two weeks and well, started my own company.
1: <laughs> okay, so then that, uh, if if the first instance was, you know, you learning this about buildings and doing cove toll, I might say by force, but that sounds to me more by choice.
2: I think so, because yes. by, by force, I was most definitely in the field. Like, yeah. that's why I stopped being an architect and started being a sustainability consultant. And I think by choice was to become an entrepreneur
1: are you, and this is a loaded question, right? But I just feel like the, the picture that gets painted, um, of entrepreneurship is, you know, we sort of, we, um, we deify, um, you know, the executive in our culture. And, and that's, I think that's better than maybe in a past, uh, you know, life where we might've heard someone that said we're starting a new company of like, Oh, so that means you're unemployed basically. Right. Like it's, this is better than the alternative, but I also feel like, um, The sausage behind the scenes, the stress, the family issues, just all the stuff that goes on with shepherding something, having everything on your back is not really seen. So my question was going to be, are you generally having fun? And how do you think that this stage uh, compares with when you first started? What are your your emotional state, uh, if you will?
2: That's an awesome question, (laughs) by the way. I will. I'll put it kind of on a spectrum. Yeah. Uh, because I really do believe that my emotional state and my fun is most definitely on a spectrum. So, short answer is yes. I I love every part of it. I'm so glad that I did it, and I'm glad every day. Not every minute every day, but most definitely every day. Um, but for me, it was. It's most definitely the spectrum of. Oh my gosh, we raised 30 million dollars and oh my gosh, we closed our biggest deal ever. Oh my gosh, we signed Acom and Arab companies that I admire all the way to Oh crap. I have to I have to do this uh I have to do this um uh, client proposal and I haven't done it before and I have to figure it out on the fly. Yeah or oh my gosh i have uh you know lost a key member of my team that i admired i'm happy for them but i'm so sad to see them go and it's it's that roller coaster of a ride where you're consistently doing things at least for me that i hadn't done before i'm consistently doing things that i didn't think i would do and i'm also consistently celebrating things that i never thought i'd be able to celebrate when i started this journey i didn't think how far I would go. I knew I had a belief in my heart that I was going to touch every building that ever gets built or renovated. And I haven't fulfilled that dream yet, but I didn't know how far I was going to go. And I'm still very much going in my view. We're early. We've just started.
1: Uh, I think that, um, I think as humans we, we, we often underestimate what we can actually do. and I think that from a physical, emotional, and mental standpoint as well, um, as you're talking about this, it really I mean, I think there's so many parallels to parenthood. Of course, we were talking about parenthood uh, prior to uh, you know the uh, the show starting. It is the highs of parenthood are the highest of highs and the lows are the lowest of lows. It is, it is very tough to exist in the emotional middle.
2: I think that's exactly right. Um I don't know if you've um read this book, but I think it makes so much sense. It's called um, Oh gosh, I was going to refer and now it's escaping my mind. I'm sure it'll, it'll come, come back. back. Yeah. Um Just but it the messy middle. There we go. Yeah, okay. I feel like it's all the, the freaking messy middle. That's exactly <laughs> what it feels like. And yeah. I do think that being a mom cuz I've now been a mom for a year, so I'm still new to that absolutely helps me also be more empathetic as a leader it helps me just be it helps me be more calm and more empathetic and helps me have more perspective i
1: I, I could see that i think that when when influenced correctly you would think that most people that have the experience of raising a child no matter what you know after a year or 18 years you know patience and empathy hopefully are two things that kind of come through in the process
2: most definitely i mean that's what i'm feeling already like there is no way on earth that I thought I could be a CEO of a company of our size like we have 70 people we've been growing we've been scaling and being mom and a month in still be solving the problems that I was solving and celebrating the wins that we were celebrating and balance that and I think that balance is such a crazy word because going back to what you said, I couldn't agree more. I think we're capable of more than what we give ourselves credit for.
1: Okay, so let's talk about that growth. Okay, so 70 people. And what year did you start the company?
2: We started about five years ago.
1: Okay, and so where? what is your focus for 24 and 25? Is it a new product? Is it penetrating a certain market? How are you growing the business from here?
2: So- I think that what we have really learned in the last year, um, which I have been reading all of the tech news, I know it's been a tough year for most tech companies, but I think we've been one of the fortunate ones and have really um, been able to continue our acceleration within the market. We're leaning very, very heavily into finding that ability to morph what we offer based on the customer segment. And I know AI is a buzzword, but we really have been integrating it within our systems to be able to customize what we offer based on what you need. So, for example, a particular client may describe to us a project. That, hey, I'm working on a 100,000 square foot classroom building, hypothetically. Mm -hmm. And typically right now they would need an actual human sustainability consultant to listen to that project description and be like, I think based on what you've just described to me, you need a few energy studies all through your schematic design development and construction drawing phase. And you need a few daylight analysis and carbon studies. All of that intuition is coming from an actual human consultant based on their years of experience we're training our ai systems to act as that to basically be able to prescribe to you the type of analysis or the type of studies that are meaningful for you and if then the prospect comes back and is like these all studies are great i likely do need them however i'm constrained on budget it can then come back and be like well you must do these two if you're if you're trying to get this output okay and customize the the offering and then go ahead and do it and then give you the output or if it's like if the customer is like i think i can do it just tell me what i should do it can tell you how to do it too so really meeting each particular user exactly where they are that
1: is very cool so is that something currently in development or is that functional right now
2: so we have a mvp that's working internally and we're testing heavily with it so it's it's coming out soon that's very cool I'm very excited about it.
1: I'm curious about your your people and your hiring because when I – I would imagine that the folks that you're looking for, there's a lot of overlapping circles and a very, very small um, uh, visible area of the Venn diagram, right? You have to have people – well, you, you 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 tell me, right? Because I imagine that some of the people that you need absolutely have to have as much expertise in this discipline as you do. But if that was everyone, it almost feels like it would be too limiting at a certain point, right? I'm sure there are roles where they just have to be good practitioners. They do not have to have the specific domain background that you do from an educational standpoint. How do you balance that? How do you find people?
2: I I think that the way that we have... Really thought about it as pockets of subject matter expertise because I want my research team, which is really where the subject matter expertise of our company sits and where we develop a good bit of our IP, not only to be as good as me in the subject matter, but better than me yeah. if I'm hiring correctly um, and to excel uh, the research forward in each of the different areas. For example, we launched our embodied carbon simulation module. Uh, middle of last year, while I'm an expert in building performance, embodied carbon was something new for me in particular. But again, the research team that we built was wonderful at it. So from a research team standpoint, they have to know their stuff and they have to know it significantly better than I know it. Um, As it relates to some of the other segments, I mean, the software packages and the libraries that we use are most definitely on the cutting edge, but very much standard. So if if you're great at Python, then you're great at Python. You don't have to be great at Python and um, building performance. And then same goes for customer success, sales and marketing. I feel like we've built a really solid onboarding and enablement plan so that when you come as a non-industry member um, into our team, we assimilate you to what is architecture who is our customer how do they think what are their problems and i think we've built a really good program around that
1: okay okay that's that 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 is interesting um i'd love to get a view a holistic view from you because i think that look if you're looking for negativity on the talk of, topic of sustainability you can find it and if you're looking for positivity On the topic of sustainability, you can absolutely find it. And I I truly believe we can hold two thoughts in our head at the same time. But I am very curious from someone who touches this on a day-to-day basis, whether it is a landlord building a building or a Fortune 1000 company working on an internal initiative or that is going to occupy a building. You have a front row seat into what these companies care about. Do you feel – you know we have a we live in a world of dire predictions on this front. How do you feel about what our progress is like? Are you generally an optimistic person? Are we kind of getting there? Are we realizing what we need to do?
2: Oh boy, now <laughs> you said it was a loaded question on the last uh, no. one, but I'll say this one is really the the loaded question i'm I'm actually um writing a a book about it for Wiley, and they're publishing it in the middle of this year, yeah on um on that, that is, that is the question of the book. How, how are we doing? Well, Don't Um, give away too much. Yeah. Ask, um, ask me tomorrow. I might, I may change my mind, but in general, I think I'm optimistic and that's most definitely what wakes me up every day to work as hard as I do. And I know that that is true of my team too. I think the thing that gets me excited is that, you know, like three of our key customers, are able to impact 5% of global carbon emissions. And that to me is really cool. And they're utilizing TAC um, in a way to reduce the overall carbon emissions of the world. I do think that if we wait too long for regulations, there is not going to be a world to save. And I do think that with climate change, we're getting to a point where it's not an altruistic thing, it's a financial sure. um, investment thing. And if we don't people are going to lose their investments and their money because buildings will fail because they'll be in locations that have uh, natural disasters and that'll continue to happen more and more. It is unfortunately a bad spiral. So I think sooner or later, most everyone will wake up, but because it impacts the dollars and not because. We're doing it for the right reasons. That is my unfortunate belief in this world. Look,
1: that's that. That's right. I think that at the end of the day, this is going to be more uh, about cynical motives than altruistic motives.
2: I think so. Candidly,
1: as long as it happens, I don't really care what the motivation. Um, I, I tend to agree with you. I think that we. I'm not saying that there is not cause for alarm and negativity, but I think it ignores a lot of the just incredible work that entrepreneurs like you are doing in addition to the fact that I mean you have the SEC putting out ESG guidelines for companies to follow I mean this is and whether whether said company X is you know cynical about it or altruistic about it, the fact that this is a guideline put out whether they want it or not that's that's pretty groundbreaking frankly
2: I couldn't agree more like I don't care why someone does it. So long as it's done and so long as I have a world that I can enjoy and future generations can continue to enjoy. That's yeah. that's plenty.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, I'm, I'm with you on that one. So if people want to learn more about your company and all the great things that you're doing, how can they best get in touch?
2: Well, reach reach out to us via, via our website. We have cove.tools. So check it out. We're very active on social. So if you're on Instagram, LinkedIn, whatever it is you use, we're CoveTool, Cove.tool. You'll find us. Reach out. We love to hear from folks, whether it's to just learn more, whether it's to see how we might be a fit for you, no matter what it is. If you're looking for a job, no matter what it is, just reach out. We love hearing. Even if it is just to say, hey, appreciate what you're doing. Have nothing else to say. Just wanted to say (laughs) that. That's perfectly fine, too.
1: Actually, one one thing I realized that we didn't talk about that I'd like to touch on. I think I, I think I got your a handle on leadership style, especially as we kind of discussed what you know raising a child does to kind of how you operate in the workplace. I am curious about how you build culture um, as a as a founder, as someone that has seen an organization go from single digit employees to double digit employees. Culture needs are very different at those different phases. So I'd, I'd love your take on that.
2: I'll say that one thing I didn't know was that culture was easy at 10 and culture was insane to keep and build at 50. I don't know why it's those milestones, but it was most definitely those size milestones. Like 20 to 50 was kind of a squishy mush. Sometimes we were getting it right. Other times we weren't. But at 50, boy, we needed a structure to keep our culture alive um and i think that the way that we've done that is by being very explicit and clear about who we are and who our what our core values are and what we believe in and for us we keep it simple because if you can't say it in 5 seconds then no one's going to remember it we're honest we're data driven and we're um we're transparent and we just we just do that over and over and over again and everyone that we hire we check for that mm-hmm. you can't be um a genius but not a kind person because that wouldn't be a fit for us. Yep. Um, nor can you be dishonest and extremely data-driven. That would also not be a good fit for us. So it's it's three things. It's simple things. And we we lean on everyone on the team. And I, I meet with everyone on their first week of hiring. They're, we do this thing called Climate Camp where they come into my office and we just talk for 30 minutes and get to know each other. And... I tell everyone on the team that I'm going to lean on them to keep the culture because I alone can't build it because we're not a five-person team anymore. Um, and I think people take that seriously because it's, it's on all of us.
1: I think my armchair diagnosis of why it changes around those numbers is, um, and I'd be curious to get Joshua's point of view, which I want to touch on when we transition, is um, it's kind of not your company anymore. At that, You know, like there's only so much that you can control and it gets to as it gets to that point and you have more lieutenants, you kind of lose your grip on truly being able to influence everything.
2: I think that's I think that's true on on some on some plane. I'll tell you this, at least for me, when we first became 50 it was about a year and a half ago. We had just raised our series B round. There was this influx of cash And we were just hiring, hiring, hiring. Like That was because we were going from 25 to 50 in basically a year. And that was a crazy transition. But now having been at that 50 to 70 size for a year and a half, I think that while initially I lost the grip because I felt like I had to, Mm -hmm. there's ways to really be open, honest, and create a really cool culture, even within the ELT. Like I think that we've created a great cohort where we can just be open about pretty much everything. You don't have to draw that many lines cuz they're all here because they're choosing to be here. They believe in me. That's why they chose to come work for a startup. And I think just remembering that and being excited about it and paying them the respect that I think um they have earned mm-hmm. rightfully so just creates a stronger bond and allows us to actually continue that culture farther and wider. Without me doing it myself.
1: I, I hear you. You know, they have to, at this point, they're working for you, not just for a paycheck, right? They, they are evangelists. Nick you should use anywhere. them as such. Right. Totally. Okay. Love that answer. Looking forward to bringing it up with Joshua. Cove.tool, everyone. Sandeep, thank you very much.
2: Thank you so much.
1: Okay. How you doing? Good. How are you? Got a lot of, uh, lot of fodder to discuss.
0: Yeah, it's a tough act to follow.
1: Okay. So so let's because I saw you nodding along in terms of kind of the 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 culture question as organizations grow, let's cat let's let's
0: capitalize while we're on that topic. I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think you know, I have a somewhat unique perspective. I'm a, a repeat founder. And so um my first company that I co founded was called Patient Co, which was in the healthcare payment space. And, you know, I vividly remember growing from, you know, 0 to 10 and 10 to 50 and 50 to 100 and post 100. And I couldn't agree more that, you know, that 50 mark is, is kind of magical. You know, we actually gave out plaques to people that were kind of the first 25 and first 50 on the bus at Patient Coast. So I do think there's, there's kind of something magical about that. Here at Rainforest, we are uh, right at around 20 people today and so we've we've kind of gotten to into well into double digits but still have a ways before we get to the 50 person mark and you know i think you know, the second time around, I've paid a lot of attention to making sure that the first group of people that we have on board really fits that cultural mold well, because they are going to be the bedrock that you're building the rest of the team on. And so that, that first 10, that first 20 makes a huge difference to what the next 80, 100 will look like.
1: Yeah, that's right. The, the foundation of the house has got to be strong so it doesn't collapse on the second level. Um, was there anything that you learned that was unexpected as you grew at Patient Co and reached those uh, headcount milestones that have changed the way you're treating growth
0: at Rainforest? You know, I think a couple things. I think, you know, first and foremost, the, early employees who are joining a startup are are very much joining it because they believe in the founders, because they believe in the mission. And while you still try to find people who are excited about that mission and want to go on that journey with you as you grow, you know, by the time you get to 50, 100, 150 people, it gets more and more challenging to find people who are really, uh, you know, mission and, and vision driven in quite the same way. Yeah. Um, you tend to find some people that, you know, are, are excited about the company, but also are excited about a paycheck. And so I think it's it's really important that you, um, you know, form those strong roots early on. And, you know, I, I love, you know, the fact that you talked earlier about that onboarding program. Um, I think that's something that, you know, maybe we didn't do quite as well with early on at uh, PatientCo, which was a, you know, highly nuanced field of both payments and healthcare. So I think we've really emphasized here at Rainforest diving deeply into payments and making sure that everybody regardless of their role really has a good understanding of what the ecosystem looks like I think the second thing also is just you know as you scale um, you know it's more and more important to make sure that everybody understands what you're trying to do mm-hmm. you know when you have 10 people you're all in a room everybody kind of intrinsically knows when you get to 50 people 100 people you know sometimes you you walk into a room and you're like what are we doing here? Right. You know, how did we get this far, far away? And ultimately, you know, I always kind of take that on the, on the chin and say, look, ultimately that kind of comes down to me as a leader and failing to communicate to everybody, not only what are we doing, but why are we doing it? If you can tell people why you're, you're doing something, odds are they're going to make the right decision.
1: Yeah. I I could see, you know, it's sometimes because it's in your head and it's ever present. You might not necessarily realize that, well, it's not not in everyone else's head, right? They are not having the same access to the information as I am. You almost have to stop yourself sometimes.
0: Yeah, it's really important, you know, understanding context. And I think that kind of goes into why you make decisions, but also making sure that people have the context of, uh, you know, what went into that decision and why you're doing it. And again, I I find that that builds such consensus. Mm -hmm. You know, I I used to say, you know, two very smart people with different information may come to different answers. Two very smart people with the same information or same set of context often will find a way to align. Yeah. Okay. So let's, let's back up because we kind of dove
1: in. Tell us about Rainforest. Tell us about the particular portion of the payment space that it focuses on. And then I'd love to you know, kind of go
0: backwards and go from patient co to Rainforest. Absolutely. So Rainforest is payments as a service for software companies. And, and what does that practically means? It means that we are the underlying payments infrastructure for many different types of software out there. And so as, you as a consumer, when you go online and you make a donation to your favorite charity, or you uh, check out and, and go to the cash register at a mom and pop local shop, mm-hmm. or you're trying to pay a healthcare bill online, Any of these types of use cases, those software companies need a payments provider behind the scenes. And that is what Rainforest focuses on is helping them process payments in a very safe, efficient, and effective way. And we also are helping those software companies generate new revenue and create stickier customers. So it's kind of a win for the consumer or the person who's paying by providing better payments experiences and it's a win for the software providers because they get stickier clients and they have a, a really valuable new source of revenue.
1: Okay, so I I get the just whole process being easier from a customer's
0: perspective.
1: What's the mechanism by which you are creating a customer that is more likely to use that service in the future?
0: Yeah, so study after study shows that when you have a a customer or a merchant, as we would like to call it, that is using a software platform, if they start processing payments, they are much more likely to have higher engagement with that software platform and much less likely to churn. Mm-hmm. And when you think about it, it kind of makes sense because when you're a business and you're using a software day in and day out, it's one thing just to use it or have your employees use it. It's another when your revenue stream is coming from that software company mm-hmm. and you wake up every single morning and in your bank account, there's money that's being deposited that you've earned from that software company.
1: Yep. Yeah. That's the, the association is much more uh, impactful and in your face.
0: Absolutely. And, (laughs) and I think that's, you know, one, one, uh, you know, concept I've had as a repeat entrepreneur is always focusing on revenue generating businesses. Yes. And you know, I think there's a lot of businesses out there that are, are efficiency focused, uh, or our different workflow tools. You know, every business I've ever started has really been in the revenue generation space. I think if you can help companies make more money, you're going to be a much more valuable tool and company. I mean, this is, this is sort of my
1: philosophy on, um, uh, job security as well. And obviously this is Bias coming from someone who you know is a commissioned salesperson, but my my idea of the best job security possible is you know if you can make money for a company, yeah, usually you're in a pretty good position. Absolutely. This was the when I first graduated college. I was an inside sales rep, and this was in um, uh, the middle of oh eight. Okay. And so, you know, all of us fresh out of college experienced something that we never experienced before. And all of a sudden executives started to really not want to have conversations or take meetings to learn about a new product because, well, you know, there were plenty of more important things at that point in time. And everyone is a bit dejected. And so, you know, we're kind of having an all hands. um, And, you know, the leadership was saying that, you know, and these were, you know, it was a startup. These two guys were barely older than I was. And they said, you know, I get that everyone's scared out there, right? You know this impacts us just as much as it impacts you. And just know that you know if if you can sell, you are never going to have a hard time finding a job. Yeah, I think those are, uh, those and, are and wise, that, wise words. Well, and I think that probably that goes. That seems to be somewhat of the um, mon, uh, you know, part of the mantra that you've taken into building companies is that, especially in a universe in the past several years when uh, belts have tightened. And software services getting canceled. If you can make a company money, pretty good way to stick around.
0: Yeah, and you know it's an interesting point. We we've actually seen a a huge uh, uptick in demand over um, you know the last year or two, a number of quarters, in particular because we are helping software companies generate more with less. They can Mm. take an existing. Uh, client and once you turn on payments that's a new revenue stream and for many top performing companies payments can actually represent 50 percent of their overall revenue and so if you're a 10 million dollar revenue company today and you effectively add payments by using someone like rainforest you may be able to actually double your your business without doubling your client count that is very interesting so and this
1: it's interesting also about your product is that there is a there's a B2B aspect and a B2C aspect to it. Obviously, the, you are getting paid by the merchant, or at least a portion of the transaction, yep. I assume. Yep, that's right. But it ultimately has to be user-friendly for two different sets of people. The business that is your media customer and the end consumer that, if it doesn't work for, that business will not be your customer. I'm curious how you design with two parties
0: um, in mind like that. It's a really important distinction. Historically, the way payments has been distributed has been through a referral model. A software company would partner with a bank or a sales arm of a bank that was called an ISO, an independent sales organization, to distribute payments. And it was very much a… Throw a lead over the wall. If it closes, we will give you some commission on the back end, call the residual. Mm-hmm. It was very disjointed. And you know in the late 90s and early 2000s, they kind of came up with this term called integrated payments, which basically meant you had some integration into the software. you weren't you know ringing something up in, in a computer and then walking across the, the hall to punch it into a, a terminal, right It was integrated, you hit the checkout button and you can pay. Well, we've now taken that to the next level, which is embedded payments, which means that the payment experience is natively embedded within that software. And think about as a consumer, think about something like Uber or Lyft. You don't think about making a payment. It's so intrinsic Mm -hmm. to the actual experience. You know, is Uber a payments company or are they a transportation company? Well, I think they're actually a little bit of both. That is true, and to your
1: point about the increasing of revenue, when I get out of the airport and I see a line of cabs that is right in front of me, and frankly probably comes a couple minutes quicker than the Uber, I'd still rather wait because really, at the end of the day, it is the payment process of, I mean, it's the first time I've ever thought about this, having this conversation, it is the payment process that is so much more enjoyable that convinces me to wait just a little bit longer for
0: that transportation. That's the perfect analogy. If you think about a taxi, that's really a disjointed experience, right? Yeah. They they use a taxi meter and it says at the end of your journey, you know, your your journey is, you know, your your fare is $34. And then you either have to take out cash and pay them or you have to use a separate credit card terminal and fiddle with it and mm-hmm. punch in the numbers. Whereas in Uber, it's just fully embedded, right? It just happens as part of the experience. And we see that companies that have fully embedded payments experience actually drive uh, increased adoption and they actually can increase their basket size, meaning though they'll, they'll earn more on each and every person that comes through the door. So I think it's, uh, you know, both the, the consumer angle and making sure that we are nicely embedded into the overall flow is a big part of what we do. Okay. Let's get to the psychoanalysis portion of the show.
1: Similar topic and question that I brought up with Sundeep. I am curious about your entrepreneurial journey. Obviously, as we uh, already covered, you are a second-time founder. Clearly, you had a decent experience the first time around, such that you chose to put yourself through this again. So, tell me, tell me about your background. Tell me about your drive to start uh, Patient Co. Tell me where you think uh, you kind
0: of fall along that spectrum that we discussed with Patient Co. It- you know, we really started that business in search of a, of a problem that was, you know, if you look at a lot of entrepreneurial articles and books, we found a problem that a lot of people had. It was a big market and we really engineered the company around it. You know, going into that, I wasn't, you know, well-versed in healthcare at all. You know, I'd paid very few healthcare bills. I was just graduating college at that point. So I didn't have a lot of experience. So that, that was really one where we, um, searched very methodically for a problem and found uh, a market that we thought we could build a good solution in. And, you know, fast forward a decade later, and, and clearly we have, you know, that scaled to, to billions of dollars in processing and, and tens of millions of patients. But that was really kind of a, you know, an engineered um, company. In between Patient Co and starting Rainforest, I, I took a bit of time off and started a consulting firm and worked primarily with software companies, helping them with payment strategy. Mm. Using everything I had learned building a company myself, figured let me help other entrepreneurs make their their jobs a little bit easier. And I, I think that's where my my view changed quite a bit because after a few years of doing it, I realized that on the one hand, we had huge opportunity as an industry to move to embedded payments, to add better consumer experiences, to generate all this revenue. But on the other hand, the vendors in the space, other payment processors, and our, our competitors of Rainforest today, were not doing a good job. They had terrible customer service. They had generally really high pricing. And almost all of them had very little good technology. And so when you kind of looked across those three dimensions, the, the technology and the product, the customer service, and the commercials, you really couldn't get good optimization there. And you know, I remember time after time, banging my head against the wall saying, why can't I just find a vendor to work with? My my life as a consultant is so painful, you know, getting to the end of a project and saying, we're going to pick the least worst vendor. You know, it's not who do we like, it's it's mm-hmm. who's, who's not the worst. And that's just a really tough place to be. And so, you know, I really felt at that point I had no other option besides to start this. And I think I was very fortunate because I had experience of over a decade in payments. You know, I had personally grown and built, um, you know, a very successful software platform. And I had a great team that came with me both from uh, patient co and the engineering and product side, but also from the consulting world. And we kind of merged the two cohorts of, you know, engineering talent and then the the payment operators from my consulting um, network. And that's how we got the company started. And so, you know, by choice or force, I I don't know, but it certainly was uh, something I was compelled to do because I think the industry really needed it. Those, it's it's an unintended
1: unintended consequence story, which typically tends to be the best ones that kind of just develop organically like that.
0: Yeah, it it definitely was organic, and you know. I think a lot of times people ask, you know, was it skill or luck, you know, to entrepreneurs and and how they were successful? You know, I'm, I think it's, it's very much a combination of both. It's, you know, you got to be in the right place at the right time. So much of of life is timing, but then you also couple that with the skill and the background to be able to build these complex businesses and to operate them very effectively. Yeah. Look, that's uh, the, a much
1: deeper philosophical question that we can touch on on another show about free will and whether we have it and how that affects what we're doing. But, you know, okay. Yes, you cannot control the circumstances in which you were born to where you were born. But, you know, especially in business, I think a lot of it is you make your own luck, right? You put yourself in enough rooms with enough people, with enough circumstances that yes, the situation finds you, but you have, widened the pool of people or circumstances such that you have more available to you.
0: It's also, I think, based on your history and what you've seen and the data points you have. Yeah. And, you know, it was it was very interesting. We we announced uh, late last year that we had closed um, a, a large uh, seed round that was uh, led by Excel and TechSquare Ventures here in town and um, Infinity Ventures and other, you know, fintech focused investors. And one of the most interesting questions they always ask me is, you know, where's all your customer research, you know, where's your early customers. And I kind of told them, look, I've, I've been paid the last three years, uh, very well as a consultant to do customer discovery. There, there's nobody else that that's going to come before you doing a pitch that has done more customer research. Cause I've sat with, you know, over 50 different software companies helping them think through their strategy. So I've seen how buyers think about it. I've seen what their challenges are, and I've seen how all the vendors are responding or failing to respond. And so there really wasn't anyone else, I think, at that point in time who had more data points to be able to really craft this company in the way that we have. That was a very good answer to that question for a VC. Well, we had a <laughs> we we successfully closed the closed the the round and um was oversubscribed and that's and great had competing term sheets. So uh, uh, I guess love the it. answer worked.
1: Yeah. Uh, what what I what I'm very interested in is, of course, you you mentioned your um your cap table, and of course you have both local and national funding in there. Was this purposeful? Was this by accident? Uh, I you know I think Atlanta's gone leagues beyond where it was from a VC standpoint, but I'm curious if that just happened or if it was
0: targeted. Yeah. You know, it it was actually really, um, you know, targeted. I I wanted to fill three (laughs) gaps when I thought about fundraising for our uh, seed round. The the first was to make sure that we had fintech experts around the table. I wanted people who really understood payments and fintech who had the networks, who understood the journey we were going to go on and the challenges we would face and the time it would take, you know, for us to build this type of business. The next thing that I wanted was to make sure that we had folks that had deep pockets. You know, really, your kind of blue chip firms, and that's mm-hmm. where uh, folks like Excel and the Box Group out of New York come in. They've just seen it all. They've been around a very long time. Um, you know, they're able to be a multi-stage fund and, and you know work with you for a long time. And in such a competitive space, you know, we knew we were going to raise multiple rounds of capital, and and we were you know focused on building a big business. So that was kind of the second group. And then the third group that's always been important to me is. We are an Atlanta forward company. Our headquarters are here. You know, a lot of our our core team is here. We do have some remote folks, but you know, the 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 vast majority are in Atlanta. And so, you know, wanted to support that that Atlanta ecosystem and also acknowledge the value that they bring. And so, we've got some Atlanta representation as well.
1: Okay, let let's talk about that because Atlanta kind of is the um let's call it the Greek chorus in the background here on this show, and um. <clears throat> I don't think that we have really an industry that defines Atlanta, such that, you know, film is in um, Los Angeles or energy is in Houston. But within our tech industry, I think the clear uh, winner, or at least in terms of share, is fintech, right? That is really what, it, you know, in, in technology, uh, at least software, what Atlanta is known for why i always wonder why these things develop is it organic is there some reason he some reason based on past entrepreneurs
0: and acquisitions like why is this the mecca for this particular type of technology yeah, so they say that somewhere between seventy and eighty percent of all credit card payments yeah. still get routed through Georgia today. That's crazy, and you know I think it's because historically we've had uh, a lot of payment companies that innovated here and grew. And so if you look at the top processors, and again, a lot of these have now been acquired. But you know, you had First Data here, mm-hmm. you had T-Sys down in Columbus, you had Elevon, you had WorldPay. And, and the list goes on and on of, of payments companies. And so you just had a, a huge number of payments professionals um, around the, the Atlanta and, and greater Georgia area. And, you know, I think based on what I talked about before in terms of having the experience and longevity, it's really that talent that, that makes a big difference. Well, I imagine that your, your talent pool from which to pull is quite wide. It really is. You know, Atlanta is, I think, a great place to start a company. Um, You know, I've always found that, you know, Atlanta has a great quality of life. You know, you have uh, really, really top talent coming from the great universities we have, whether it's Georgia Tech or Emory or Georgia State, you know, the list goes on. And there aren't as many companies you're competing with here. You know, if we were based in Silicon Valley, especially a couple of years ago, it would cost us at least four, five, six times as much to create the same companies yeah. um, out on the West Coast that it does here. And a lot of it's due to cost of living and and talent of of or uh, competition among talent.
1: Yeah, that's right. And when you
0: although although I am very curious what happens on that front
1: because one interesting stat that I found out the other day was the the United States population grew by 1.6 million last year. 1.4 million of those people moved to the south. Basically, Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, Tennessee, and Texas, right? So, yes, people are voting with their feet. Now, companies vote with their feet too at a certain point, and I think all this is fantastic for Atlanta. I do wonder when you get to a point where you might be sitting there and saying, oh, maybe this is much more of a competitive environment than I
0: am used to. I think Atlanta has has come so far in the last 2 decades yeah. but you know I think we still have a long way to go you know when you compare us to New York or Boston or mm-hmm. Silicon Valley and and you know I've I've been a huge proponent of Atlanta you know started you know three companies here in Atlanta and, and will continue to to do so um but I don't you know I don't I don't think that the competition is something that really scares us if anything I think the caliber of talent will continue to increase mm-hmm. and the thing I'm actually most excited about in the Atlanta market is as we're getting to multiple generations of startup founders and repeat founders, they're able to give back and you know whether that's someone like David Cummings who's you know doing so from a, a real estate and culture perspective, whether it's um you know repeat founders like myself that spend a lot of time mentoring other mm-hmm. first time founders, you know there's so many different ways to give back, and that's really something that has made the epicenters of entrepreneurship in the U S what they are is that collection of successful entrepreneurs giving back. And we're now, I think just getting to that point where you've got that critical mass in Atlanta. I couldn't agree more, right? You keep it in the family. You have enough people with successful
1: exits who reinvest back into the community, whether that is with uh, talent time or dollars. Uh, obviously I could go on and on about what David Cummings just did for Southtown Town, but I really think that we're going to look back in a decade and um, I, this is not an exaggeration. I think he has, he has single-handedly saved downtown. Um, it, it, it is, as someone who is extremely invested in that, not just from a professional, but a personal standpoint, Atlanta is too good of a city to have the downtown that we have. Um, I, I feel pretty good.
0: Yeah, it, it's remarkable. i you know, I'd be really curious to watch the growth yeah. uh, that that happens in that area. And you know, just looking at the success of Atlanta Tech Village, which is is where we're based now, um, there's just such great energy there, and people really enjoy coming to work every day. Well, yes, and you have
1: the type of look institutional real estate investors. There is a time and place for them, but they are not known to be patient capital. Um, hence what happened to the first owner. So it's I I think that he is a he and his organization and his ilk are a great ownership group because they care and they do not have the typical um issues that other real estate investors have where there's too many cooks in the kitchen too many opinions uh and too much additional capital
0: yeah, it's it's you know it's uh, I think a great investment for Atlanta and and I'm also excited about all the other things happening in Atlanta. You know, even out of Georgia Tech, uh, mm-hmm. Chris Klaus and, and CreateX, and there's just so many initiatives. When I look back a decade ago, two decades ago, three decades ago, it, it's remarkable how much we've we've improved each and every one. It really is. Um, when in in terms of your buyer
1: profile, and we're totally doing 180, <clears throat> but when I hear what your product does, you know, I go, I go, well, you know, this could be, is this IT? Is it
0: product? I mean, who, who is typically your audience and your buyer? That's one thing that we've focused a lot on at Rainforest is making sure that our product works well across all of your different buyer groups. One of our main competitors is Stripe, which is a payments processor that's particularly developer focused they really catered to the developer experience and said, we will figure out how to let developers adopt our mm-hmm. product quickly and easily. And they did a phenomenal job with that. It turns out, though, as software companies scale, the development and the technology is just one part of the puzzle. You also have the commercials and the accounting and finance. You also have the operations. You also have the sales and go-to-market. And one of the big challenges that we see as, as companies look to add payments as this revenue stream is around adoption. Mm. They may have a 1,000 customers of their software, but maybe only a 100 of them are using payments or subscribed for payments, meaning a 10% attach rate. If we can help them get from 10% attach rate up to 20, 30, 40, 50, 80%, that's literally millions of dollars of additional revenue that they're driving. And that's why Rainforest is focused on that consultative Mm. aspect of both um, sales and implementation and service in a way that many of our competitors who are, are focused on self service are not. I got it. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Um well I really appreciate you coming here, sharing your story. Uh Rainforest.com or So you can learn more about yes. us at RainforestPay.com dot com. Okay. That's rainforestpay.com. You can also check us out on LinkedIn. Um, I also am a pretty frequent poster um, on LinkedIn myself, Joshua Silver, and um, really appreciate you having me on the show. Absolutely. Joshua, thank you. Sandeep, thank you for sharing your story.
2: Yeah, this has been a pleasure.
1: Okay. Everyone, thank you for listening to Tech Talk. Have a great one.